You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hey, good morning. Hey, good to see you guys. Hey, would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13? We will look at Romans chapter 13 in the first uh, seven verses this morning in this wonderful substantive passage. So let me read this, Romans 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But you have no fear of the one who is in authority, Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Let me pray. Uh, Father, I pray and thank you for your word, and I thank you for its clarity and its integrity, and I pray that you would use me by your Holy Spirit to make it clear today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, two things growing up in my mom's house that were not on the table. Uh, one were conversations about religion, especially outside of our home. And the other, you probably know, were conversations about politics. Uh, my mom didn't have a ton of rules, but that was one of the rules. Uh, and if I brought it up, I was going to deal with some kind of version of her wrath, right? So naturally, that led to me wanting to be a lawyer. Um, I just wanted to, I don't know why, I just always wanted to be a lawyer. I think John Grisham. Um, gave me a picture of what life in law would look like. And then I came to faith uh, early on in eighth grade. I came to faith and, uh, and about my senior year of high school, started to feel this call to be a pastor. And I really fought that call. Um, I pushed it away for a long time because I wanted to be a lawyer. And I bargained with God. I was like, please don't make me be a pastor. They have to say hard things like today. Uh, they uh, have to deal with, they don't make a lot of money. Uh, and I'll double tithe, right? Just let me be a, a, let me be a lawyer, right? And then my senior year of college, um, God wrangled my heart, and I yielded to what I knew was His call to ministry. So now, full circle, here we come. Instead of a lawyer talking about faith, I am a pastor talking about the law, which means this is probably the greatest single moment of my life, and it's all downhill from here. Is my uh, is my thought, but. Guys, this is a weighty passage today, and it's weighty for a number of reasons. Um, It's weighty because um, when we read the Bible, we read the Bible one passage at a time. Uh, And so I can't get up here today and say everything that the Bible says about everything. It would be exhausting. No human person can do it, especially with the cowboys kicking off at noon, okay? That's just a non-starter. So there are a number of things that the Bible says about a number of things that won't find their way into this passage. One of those things is justice. 
Um, we care a great deal about justice because God delights in justice. Northway Church cares a great deal about justice. We are to be a just people. We are to fight for the rights of those in need of justice, and yet you don't find a lot of that in today's sermon. In fact, really, today's sermon is actually kind of a, about a heart posture, um, specifically when we as Christian citizens experience a kind of injustice at times in our lives. So this is kind of the other side of the coin. And so can't say everything today about justice, even though it's extraordinarily important. It doesn't mean that we don't value it. This passage is also not about the ideals of government how. Um, this is not me waxing idealistically about what the Bible says about a more perfect union. That's not what this passage is about. The context of this passage is that it's written in a very specific, uh, specific time in the history of the church. Uh, most scholars uh, think that that's 57 or 58 AD when Paul's going to write this letter. Uh, when the Christians in Rome are under the rule of Nero, who is increasingly crazy and maniacal, and uh, by the mid-60s, uh, Nero will start, as you probably know, a fire that burns down a ton of Rome to which he blames on the Christians. And so we're talking about a very hostile place for Christians. We're not talking about a place where Christians fundamentally understand any kind of rights per se, unless they're Roman citizens. We're talking about um, a specific threat that they posed to Caesar and to his government because one, if you were a Roman citizen, what was expected of you, or if you were in Rome, what was expected is that you would worship Caesar as a kind of quasi-God and you would certainly worship the pantheon of gods. And Christians to both would say, no, we, we don't, we protest. We worship one God, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, Caesar is not, and we don't worship uh, a pantheon of gods, we worship one God. And that put them um, in um, ill uh, repute with Caesar. They were, uh, to say it lightly, a threat, and they remained that way. And then there's this other threat kind of going on, and this is part of the reason why Paul's going to write the letter. And one commentator calls this threat new creation extremism. And what this means to say is these people had been radically converted to Christ. They would publicly say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Therefore, why in the world would we follow normal rules? Like there was perhaps a temptation to reject every human and societal convention, a kind of antinomianism, if you will. And to that, Paul has to respond. And he responds not just with this one passage, we know this. He doesn't just say to the church in Rome, here are the seven verses. He writes them a letter, and that's really important because um, Brady's message last week, his wonderful message on um, the ethic of Christian love is most certainly conditioning this passage. It is most certain. So we're not looking at this passage in a vacuum. We're looking at it with the same call, uh, with the same uh, passage or verses in mind, that Jennifer came up here and read in French, which was beautiful. But I mean, the whole idea of that passage, I believe, is summed up uh, in the last verse where it says, don't um, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good, if you remember those verses. And uh, Douglas Moo, who is uh, a scholar on the book of Romans, said this, and the quote will be behind me, and this is important because we need to see this um, in light of the passage that we're reading today, okay? Because amidst a most difficult context 
to be a Christian, this is the situation where the church in Rome finds themselves. And this is what Douglas Moo had to say. Uh, He says this, Evil can overcome us when we allow the pressure put on us by a hostile world to force us into attitudes and actions that are out of keeping with the transformed character of the new realm. And so Paul urges us to resist such temptation. But more than that, sounding a typical note, a note typical both of this paragraph and of the teaching of Jesus that it reflects, he urges us to take a positive step as well to work constantly at triumphing over the evil others do to us by doing good and by responding to that evil with the good rather than with evil, we gain a victory over that evil. Not only have we not allowed it to corrupt our own moral integrity, but we have displayed the character of Christ before a watching and skeptical world. And so Paul's going to write this passage, this letter to the church in Rome with this in mind. And this is what's going on as he writes, amidst a most difficult context to be a Christian. He's going to say, this is what God's actually doing with those who are over you in authority. And this is the kind of character that you must possess in that kind of context. And that's a good word for them today. And it's a good word for us today. And so the two questions that we'll look at this morning are what is God's purpose for government, first of all, and secondly, how do we honor and embody Christ as citizens in our time today? So let's look at God's purpose for government. Look at his design for government. Start again in verse one. Let every person be subject, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And that's his judgment. That's his judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So what do we see here right off the bat? What is Paul saying? He's saying that government is a divinely ordained structure of leadership, a divinely ordained structure of leadership that is meant for good. Let's keep going. We'll explain it more here in a second. Let me pick up on the last part of verse three. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Verse four, for he is God's servant. This is government for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, so what Paul's also saying is not only is government a divinely ordained structure of leadership meant for our good, it is also a servant that God uses to punish, it, to punish wrongdoing with the power of the sword in order to promote and reward the good. And then verse six, God's purposes in government. Let's jump down to verse six. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so uh, what we see in God's design of government is an administration of taxes, of customs, of revenues 
And this is the most visible expression throughout history of our subservience to the state. Okay, so that's the basic outline. How do we then see God's purposes at work in the government? Okay, verse one, he's sovereign over everything in his establishment of government. Sovereign over everything. And you're like, no, 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 Matt, you mean like theocracies, right? You mean like the future day when everything will be good, like he's sovereign over that. And the answer to that is, well, yes, but, but no. That's not when he will be sovereign. Or maybe you think, well, he's sovereign. He'll be, he will be sovereign when we get uh, to the good old days, to the past, when things are good again. When we get back to that day, we'll, we'll, we'll cross a threshold from whatever this situation we're in to that, and then he'll be sovereign over that thing when we get back to the past. And the answer is, yeah, of course he'll be sovereign, but he's not waiting to be sovereign. Or you maybe you go, oh, you mean like, a, uh, like more of a theocracy, right? Like more of a Christian monarchy like Great Britain, where they actually codify their allegiance to Jesus in their constitution, that those are the kinds of governments that he's sovereign over. And I say, well, yeah, of course he's sovereign over that, but he's also sovereign over everything, That's the point from the lunatic Nero, who was, I mean, I wish I had time. He was a lunatic, lunatic. And Paul saying, God has established that authority that has passed through his hands from Nero to today. He is sovereign over everything. Daniel, in Daniel 4.17, it says this. It says, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And then Solomon will add in Proverb 21 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. Paul's first first point, I guess my first point, is God is sovereign over everything, including the establishment of government by unjust men and women. The second thing is that government, verse three, government is a gift from God to promote positive behavior and punish evil. So my grandpa, um, one of his many side hustles was he taught driver's ed and defensive driving for years. Uh, So much so that I still meet a lot of people, older folks in their 60s and 70s, who when they find out that Bill Durek was my grandpa, they'll say, your grandpa taught me how to drive, which is really cool uh, because he, uh, if you got a Catholic education in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, there's a really, or 90s or aughts for that matter. No, not the aughts, 90s, sorry. Uh, Then Bill Durek uh, may have been your driver's ed teacher or your defensive driving teacher, one or the other. You know, we've been through both. Um, And so my grandpa, I got to be uh, part of his swan song, his last class that he ever taught. It was really cool. It was me and my cousin, Kim. And uh, my grandpa was a really great storyteller. And uh, he said, all right, guys, I'm gonna give you this little uh, nugget of wisdom at the end. He's like, I know how to not ever get a speeding ticket. He's like, I know what to do. And I'll tell you because I like you. He's like, you ready? And so we're all at the edge of our seats and we're all thinking like, I'm thinking, okay, is it seven, don't go, don't go over seven miles an hour over the speed limit. I've heard that one. Just don't go over seven. Is it, if you're gonna speed, speed in the right lane. I didn't know what grandpa was gonna say. And so he has us all at the edge of our seats and he goes, you ready for it? He goes, don't speed. He goes, don't speed. And he goes, you'll never get a ticket. And uh, his point, uh, as uh, anticlimactic as it was, was actually profound. 
Because what happens to people who always speed? Like if you're that crazy person, some of you, this is not what I meant to bring conviction upon this morning. Uh, But if the Lord's doing that, then that's between you guys. But if you're that person that goes 120 miles an hour down Midway or the tollway, God forbid, you know your time's coming, right? And you'll get ticket after ticket after ticket. But eventually the government will take away your car if you don't stop that stuff. And why is that? Because the government is established by God, verse three, to promote positive behavior and to punish evil. And if you're gonna be crazy on the road, then you are an ostensible threat and the government will step in wisely and say, you don't need to drive. And it is a very good thing in verse three, Paul is saying that there are channels of re- for real complaints Every day, from crazy drivers to more substantive things, there are channels for real complaints that are adjudicated with the hope of justice because of the government that God has created over us. And this is God's will for us. It's a gift from God to promote positive behavior and punish evil. In verse 4, we get a little bit more specific. It says that the government bears the sword. And government bears the sword, namely, so we don't have to bear the sword Um, There's a number of different uh, thoughts on what the sword means, but what it likely means is um, some version of capital punishment, which is not an endorsement per se of capital punishment, but a recognition that specifically in the Old Testament, you do see a picture of capital punishment when certain crimes took place. But by government bearing the sword, we mean to say that the government holds the responsibility uh, to Um, execute or to exercise capital punishment. And then there's also the understanding of war here as well. That is to say, to defend our country's sovereignty or any country's sovereignty that the government, verse four, bears that that responsibility so we don't have to, which again is really, really wonderful news that if there is some creeper McCreeperson walking around your neighborhood, if there is some stalker if there's somebody like, like on your property that you don't have to be a vigilante, and I know we try to uh, celebrate that a little bit in our state of Texas, uh, but you don't have to be a vigilante. You don't have to have a gun. You, you can have a gun, but you don't have to have a gun. You can call the police, and the police will send over a random police officer who will pledge to step into harm's way to make sure that that person cannot Uh, disrupt your life or cause you any harm. So we don't have to be vigilantes, which is really great news. And Paul is saying that the government bears the sword so that we don't have to because it would be anarchy. It would be chaos. It would be horrible if we always had to take justice into our hands. And so that's a good gift from God in bearing the sword. And then the last thing, verse six, the administration of taxes. This is where it gets interesting. So the text here says that, uh, that the government... Verse six is a minister of God. That is a loaded word, minister. That's a priestly word. That's not like a word servant used generally. That's a word of those who attended in the temple and then it's conditioned by a minister of God. And so what God is saying is that these men and women who exercise leadership through government are attending and ministering. They're attending to us. And in some way, through the common grace of God's goodness, doing a good likely for us. Um, This is why in places like Great Britain, you don't have a Department of Defense, you have a ministry 
of defense because it digs directly into what we see here in Romans 13. And you think about the administration of taxes and I go, okay, well, this is low-hanging fruit because um, unless you helicoptered here this morning, which I don't think anybody did, um, you almost certainly drove down Walnut Hill or Hedgeway. And Walnut Hill and Hedgeway once did not exist. And then the good citizens of Dallas decided that those roads needed to exist. And so they pooled money through taxes and they built those roads. And uh, because of some bad soil over in these parts, those roads have had to be fixed over and over and over again. And you know what fixes those roads? Our money. Our money does. Our aggregate taxes fixes the roads as a common good for us to be able to pass where we need to go and to come to church. And if you uh, are uh, within DISD, at DISD, if your kids are there or will be there, uh, lunch at your DISD school is going to be free. And it's going to be free for a lot of reasons. But part of the reason that lunch is free is because they know that uh, it's quite a burden for many of the families to come up with food or let alone the money to eat lunch. And so part of our property taxes here along with other dollars, go to the common good of making sure that every kid within DISD gets breakfast or lunch, which is really great news. And that's Paul saying the government attending, ministering to us. Uh, this is like through our national defense. You guys know that there are people that don't like us, that don't like that we exist, and yet we spend uh, a lot of money protecting our country uh, through the aggregate dollars of our taxes to ensure that we have uh, Lord willing, a safe place to exist. Um, if you are um, a product of uh, a state school in Texas, with all due respect to my private school friends, if you are a graduate of uh, UNT or Texas Tech or the University of Texas or Texas A&M, uh, wherever you are, um, uh, wherever you're a student, wh- that, that part of your education was, uh, was subsidized. And so, uh, and so, anyway, the point here is just that uh, that God has created the good of government to administer taxes for as a common grace for all of us to benefit. And in some way, this is God attending to us uh, for his good through government. And so to say it succinctly, what we see in this, when we answer the question, how has God designed government? What is it for? It's a divinely ordained structure of leadership meant to promote good and punish evil, okay? And now we get into another question, my second question, and that is, well, how do we then honor and embody Christ as citizens? And remember, I said this is conditioned specifically by last week's message. If you didn't hear it, you need to listen to it, because again, this sermon, this passage is not a passage in a vacuum. Um, So God's design for our response to government in this passage specifically is drilling entirely into our character, So Paul is now turning the conversation and he's talking about the kind of character people we need to be amidst difficult situations. Remember, he's writing to this amidst chaos. And he's also, uh, this is a word for us for all time. So God's design for our response to government. The first thing he says, verse 1, 1a, and then he conditions this in other places. Be subject, verse 1, be subject to governing authorities. Be subject Submit to governing authorities. Qualifies that, verse 2, to not resist the authorities that God has appointed um, so as to not incur judgment. Um, 
verse three, the second part of verse, verse three, how are we being subject to governing authorities? Uh, to fear, to do good, and to thus receive uh, the approval and the quote-unquote blessing of government favor. And then verse five, to recognize in our conscience that it is a good thing to be led. And that's important for us, to recognize that even our conscience bears weight to the fact that God has designed us to be led and that government fills that responsibility. Verse five, and then verses six and seven, to pay taxes um, and then revenues, which is an interesting word. It means tolls. So maybe, uh, maybe you need to get a toll tag, right? Because if you don't, then you're paying too much. Uh, pay taxes and tolls, and then to show appropriate honor and respect where it is due. That's the outline of how we honor and embody Christ as citizens. Okay, so how do we see God's purpose in this? We need to remember our context. What is the overarching thing that Paul says here? He says, you are to submit, which means to be subject to them. And this is where we have to do a little bit of history because if you're anything like me, it's hard to see history sometimes outside of my own socialization. So if you think about our rights compared to their rights, okay, here are our rights, right? As citizens of the United States, we collectively and individually have the right to free religion, free speech, free press, free assembly, and the right to petition our government should we desire. And uh, Officer Joe and Officer Gamble, who protect us every week, are fully aware of our rights and are here to ensure that we get the full provision of our First Amendment rights, which is a beautiful thing and I believe a gift from God. Now let's look at their context. Rights, rights. Okay, the rights of Christians in 58 AD in Rome. <laughs> no, there are no rights. You don't have any rights. You know, I mean, as a Roman citizen, you have certain rights, but those rights are subservient to uh, what you were to believe as Roman citizens. And that was one, that Caesar is God. And secondly, that we worship a pantheon of God. So again, it is entirely a threat to say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and to worship one God as opposed to many gods. So that's their context. And, and again, and so in the midst of all of that, with our um, treasure, of rights afforded to us presently in mind and with the lack of rights that our brothers and sisters had, Paul says to them, submit. Be subject to your authorities, which some of us go, okay, I'm done. See ya. Not interested. Not interested. Submit to them? Well, let's qualify that a little bit. Is Paul saying universal submission? No, he's not. He's not saying universal submission. Why? Because Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. We'll talk about that more here in a second. But he is saying there's a kind of submission that is not only subjective. There's a, there's a kind of submission that is more than what we just agree upon. That there is a kind of objective submission, not just a subjective submission, where we say we will go with things that we don't necessarily like. 
And the first objection to that might be, okay, well, what if I disagree with them or if their character is unbecoming? I would say, take notice if you disagree and their character is unbecoming, but in some sense, it doesn't matter. Again, there are biblical examples going all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar, all the way to Nero, that show that it's very clear that God will use even crazy people sometimes to do his bidding and that everything passes through the Lord's hands. Okay, so that's the first thing. What if I disagree with them or their character is unbecoming? Take notice, but that doesn't mean that we don't submit to things that we don't like. Second objection, what if they cause me to sin? This is different altogether. Now we're in a different conversation. This is when we object. Why? Because Caesar is Lord in Christ because Caesar is not Lord. <laughs> Thank you for paying attention to my sermon. It means so much. Um, because Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord and Caesar is not Lord. As one commentator said, this is when we have an issue. When the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, then we have an issue. When the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, we have an issue. And that's why we have a conscience given to us by God and his word to follow to show us when submitting is either good or not good. We see examples of protest in the scriptures. Acts 4, Peter, uh, under the authority of the Sanhedrin, is told not to speak of the gospel. And he says, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 4.20, Daniel 3 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, and they got thrown into the fire. And they did so willingly uh, because they would not bow to him. They would only bow to Yahweh Elohim. We see it in the courage of the Hebrew midwives who would not sacrifice the firstborn and thus saw Moses come to life as they nursed him in secret. We saw it in World War II, where a number of courageous men and women defied the orders of the Nazis to not reveal uh, the location of Jewish people, knowing fully well it would have led to their death. There is a time for us to protest, um, and there are limits to our submission. Uh, we do not yield to a universal submission, but we follow more than a preferential submission. We submit to more than just what we like, and that's the tension that we feel. Secondly, we're to give to people what they are owed, and this is where we have to come back to the gospel, my goodness, over and over. Somebody told me one time that the gospel is like, our hearts, rather, with respect to the gospel, are like a frozen bucket of water in January that constantly has to be thawed out so as to get real and feel the goodness and grace and mercy of God. We have to think about the gospel. What does last week's sermon tell us? It tells us that we are not, uh, we're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. And so what do we see in the life of Christ? Christ owed us no honor, and yet he does nothing but honor us. He owes us no good because of our sin, and he does nothing but show his goodness to us, and that is our ethic. And so what are we to give? We are to give our taxes and our tolls, our customs, even if we don't like our bracket, even if we don't like our tax bracket. Be wise, be shrewd, have a CPA. But Paul's point to the church in Rome is you don't get to not pay taxes because you're gonna go to heaven. That's silly, okay? That's called too heavenly-minded for any earthly good. We pay our taxes, 
even if we don't like our bracket. And we recognize broadly that God is using some of these dollars in a very real way to minister to us. So we give our taxes and our customs. And then we give respect and honor to whom respect and honor are owed. And this just means like little brass tax things. Like, guys, when we're on Facebook, if you're still on Facebook, I know it's increasingly an archaic thing, but it means that wherever you are in your social platforms, that you're not trashing somebody who's been called to lead us. That is not what our posture is supposed to be. We are, digni- we are called to dignify anybody and everyone who is called to lead us, including the people that we named at the beginning of our service, coming to recognize that they are God's servant and God is likely using them for some kind of good. So much so that if President Biden and Vice President Harris or President Trump were in this gathering today, whoever of those people you are less inclined to follow, that having having left our service, they would have felt loved, respected, dignified, and honored by their time with us. And so we are to give respect and honor to all, even those outside of who we choose. And there's a lot in this passage about overcoming evil with good by submitting to things that we don't like. But here's what's also pretty cool. There's an opportunity um, as citizens in the United States to overcome evil with good by changing things that we don't like by voting in our representative democracy, which I would just say personally, and this is just my opinion, is a choice gift from God that we have the ability to through our republic to change outcomes by who we put in office. And I want to also be clear about something too. There's no fatalism here, okay? This is not us just laying down all the time. The same Paul that writes this passage also in Acts 16 and in Acts 22. In Acts 16, he's whipped in Philippi. In Acts 22, he's almost beaten. And in both times, what does he do? He appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen. And when he does that, everybody scrambles. They go, oh my goodness, what did we just do? We publicly humiliated a Roman citizen and we can't do that. And so Paul gives us an example to appeal not only to our rights as citizens, but to the rights of other people. And that is a good thing. It is not fatalistically us laying down as we receive blow after blow. That's not what's happening. But it is to say there will be hard things that happen to us and we won't be able to control everything. And there's a kind of submission, even in things that we don't like, that we can show. And in that for us, there's an opportunity uh, to make our union better. Because I think we all agree that our union here in the United States can be a lot better. Okay, so what have we seen in this passage? Let me give a little bit of a summary. That we're to fear God by submitting to those he's put over us because he's sovereign over everything. We're to recognize their power to restrain evil and promote good in our consciences and to play our part well by honoring them. We're to disobey government should, we, uh, should that ever require us to do something, should they ever require us to do something that would cause us to sin or fail to honor God. Uh, next, we're to pay our taxes, recognizing God will use these monies for good. We're to be faithful participants in the democracy, overcoming evil with good, and we're to show the beauty of Christ in our love, deference, honor, and even our protest. We're to be those strange Christians that love people well and have 
a mind for the poor and lowly that marked history, that you guys know was eventually what turned the hundreds of years of persecution that our brothers and sisters felt in the earliest days was even those most vilely opposed to them could not stomach and process the way that they loved the least of these. And we are to remain those kinds of people. Jeannie Damoff, um, in our teaching, in our sermon time, as we prep each week, um, just reminded me, and this was so helpful, of Jesus before Pilate, just his posture before Pilate. And you read this in Luke's gospel. It says, this is Jesus right before he's to be crucified. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Verse 11, and Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Poised in willing subjection to Pilate, he spoke gracefully to his accusers without ultimately bowing to their authority because he had another kingdom in mind. And so may we brothers and sisters follow his good example and build for his kingdom by overcoming evil with good. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you that it leads us to all that we need. And I thank you um, that you have spoken to us in the clarity of your word, a truth for all time. And I pray that as citizens here, that we would take this and do right and do good with it and overcome evil with good by loving faithfully, by voting faithfully, by giving honor to all that honor is due. And I pray, God, that in using us in this, that you would strengthen us and make the beauty of your gospel more attractive to all. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would attend to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.